started by actually you can introduce yourself so I don't uh, mispronounce your name and tell people about your book. Sure. So you want me to go? Uh, are, we all, are we all on right now? Is this it? Oh, we're, well, we're all start? on. We're all on. <laughs> oh, very good. I love it. <laughs> so right into it. My name is Yaron Weissman. So there you go. I'm sure uh, there'll be no mispronunciations. I uh, cover the NBA for Bleach Report, and I'm the author. And I like being able to say, because I feel like now I'm more than a writer. I'm an author, which seems higher, um, of uh, the new book, uh, Tanking to the Top. I actually don't remember, was it the Philadelphia 76ers and the most audacious process ever? I think it's, a, oh, I think I'm looking up. The most audacious process in the history of professional sports. I didn't remember the exact uh, <laughs> subtitle. Yes. So, um, you know, um, you're nice enough, you and your publisher are nice enough to send me uh, an advanced copy of the book and I had a chance to read it. Um, you know, finished it over, I think, course of two days. Um, what was the book writing process like for you, I mean, maybe only I'm interested in this because I'm also a writer. But um, you know, from 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 you know pitching the project and, and then actually doing the reporting, um, you know, what were your some of your favorite parts of that? Um, favorite part, okay. Well, the, the process is weird. So I decide, and I'll say no pun intended, and that's the last time, right? Cause otherwise, <laughs> I'm not going to make that joke. But um, it uh, it was I came up with the idea. And like it's funny, I keep people keep asking on this whole I'll call it media tour in quotes, but you know, when did you decide to write the book or why? And I always think my answer is disappointing because it's not like some artistic answer. It's more like, oh, I thought like I want to write a book. I thought this could be a good idea. <laughs> it wasn't like I was called to it. Um so yeah, reverse engineering. But so I I so I was around the team the 2017, 2018 playoffs, um, decided, oh, this could be a good book. So that was about let's say April, May, right? And then reach out to people and try to find a book agent and did all that and spent the first part of this, like the rest of spring, early summer working on a proposal. And I got a book deal. Um, I was at summer league when they told me, so it says around July. Right. Um, from there. And then about 14 months later, I, uh, I, uh, submitted my first draft. So yeah, it was weird, man. It was hard. Um, uh, it took me like even a month or two. I don't remember the exact timing, just to even figure out like how I wanted to organize it. Like I paid, 50 bucks or something more for this thing called Scrivener, which I ended up not using. It's like a research Oh, yeah, this tool. is an app that um, a lot of writers use. I think. Yeah, yeah I, so everyone's like, get it, get it. So I did it, and it was just too overwhelming, like, trying to figure out, like, how something's new. You know, so I just went, I ended up going back to Google Docs um, and Google Folders. But just even, like, silliness like that, just figuring out how I want to organize all of it, it was kind of overwhelming. Um, eventually, I don't know if it's the most efficient way, but I eventually found my thing. Um, and I kind of spent my ideal to spend, let's say, six months reporting, six months writing. It doesn't really work like that. Like, you know this, right? As you're, when you start, you can report, report, then you start writing. It's like, oh, I need more, or I want to check this, or like, wait, this doesn't make sense. Let me report this out. And then you learn, oh, wait, that's a weird thing I just learned as I look this up. Let me make five more calls. And they have taught me something different. Um, so kind of the reporting didn't start, stop. Um, I spent a lot of time. So yeah, I didn't start writing really, though, until about six months in. And then the majority of the writing, not the majority, I shouldn't say the majority. I'd be curious to look up actually, but let's say like 30, 40% of the writing was done after the uh, loss of the Raptors, um, like after the season and just like every night from like seven to midnight, just kind of in my office. Yeah. You know, the the Sixers are, you know, notoriously probably not the easiest organization to, to deal with. Um, maybe secretive mm -hmm. is, is one word to describe them. Uh, what was it like, you know, when when they found out that you were writing this book, and obviously, um, 
you know, talking to people in the organization and making these interview requests, uh, what was that process like just dealing with them? Yeah. Um, so at first they were polite and most of uh, what would you say? That? shouldn't say that, but I don't know. At first they were polite. Um, and like they, I told them when, I think when I got the book deal, I told them that I reached out that I was doing this and I kind of figured they would say, nah, we're not interested at first. Cause it's just, it's always easier to say no at first. Right. Especially something like this. Um, they said like congratulations, it's great. They actually told me like five hundred people were working on Sixers books, which ended up being, I mean, true and not true. It was meant to scare me. It was also, and I said this to them later, like there's a difference between people who reach out saying, "Hey, would you guys work with me on a book?" versus someone saying, "I have a book deal. The book's coming out date X." You know, like that's those are two different things. And uh, one point later on, when our conversations were a little more testy, I kind of said that to them. <laughs> um, so at first they're polite, but then it became very clear that they were being, and again, I guess it's their right, but they were blocking me. So like they would, you know, I would talk to former employees and they would say, you know, all the lawyers just called and said, you can't talk to this anyone about a book. It violates your NDA. Um, or like one player, I said, um, you know, I went up to a player who I had a decent professional relationship with, told him I was in the book. He said, oh, I'll give you an hour whenever you need, no problem. About a month later, I come back. He says, yeah, the team says, you know, I can't do any book related interviews. So like stuff like that happened, um, and the Sixers are frustrating. I joke, you know, they're frustrating for everyone who doesn't work for ESPN. If you work for ESPN, you, you're good. Um, <laughs> I think Joel Embiid did three sit down for the ESPN on like training day, media day, and training camp. I'm not even exaggerating. It was like a Zach yeah, Lowe podcast. That's, that's, that's not even Sixers specific um, with any organization, <laughs> unless you're ESPN. It's different. <laughs> yeah, so that's correct. He, I was like, me, they literally, there was a Wintour's 101, a Rachel Nichols 101, and a Zach Lowe podcast um, all on media day. Meanwhile, I can't get it to four minutes. Um, but, uh, so yeah, then that was the whole time. And then they, they really, like, I went up to them a bunch of times and kept reminding them, hey, the book's coming out, the book's coming out. You know, if you want to give your view on everything, on anything, please feel free. Um, no, no, no. I said, no, no, no. Finally, at the end, um, and I guess I'll be fair. For the most part, they did not like. I was allowed to be around the team, right? Like for my day job, like they didn't. For the most part, spread my credential or anything like that. Um, so I'll give them credit for that. And and then I'll also say that that a caveat is like I talk about Sixers PR, but these decisions are being made above PR. Like they're just carrying out orders. Um, so sometimes they could have been some more professionalism. I thought into dealing with me, but that's a separate conversation. But um, in the end, so yeah, I send them, you know, like about say a week or two weeks before I file my first draft. I send them like all the list of quote unquote negative negative points that they can respond to. And I wrote like, you know, the book's not all negative. You know, Lavoy Allen tells me Brett Brown was the nicest coach he ever works for. I don't think you guys need to comment on that. But if I hear something else, you know, here are 20 or so things that you guys can comment on related to Embiid, Josh Harris, Brett Brown, Scott O'Neill, the CEO, Hinky, whatever. Suddenly they called me back. It's like they finally realized the book was coming out. Um, and they called me in and I met with Josh Harris's. It wasn't even like they brought in like Josh Harris, the owner's um, communication team in New York. I went to his fancy office there. Um, the, six, <laughs> the PR staffer, the PR guy who I was talking to, mostly in touch with, he would he used to be like his texts were usually very informal. When this stuff started going on, it was very clear that somebody else was kind of either he was supposed to forward messages like the, the language changed to very formal it just got very weird um <laughs> like it was you know like it, was, it was really fun like it's like if you look at two back-to-back text messages one is like yeah i'm all jammed up now i'll call you later if that's cool another one is like 
your own. We would love to uh, have a formal <laughs> sit down with you at your convenience. At this. I'm not even kidding. It was, it was, okay, so um, there was like someone holding uh, a gun to his head. Yeah. It was like, oh, clearly the messages were being like drafted. It was just got whatever. It got. It was clear that ownership had been involved and they cared. Um, so I did that. I was back and forth, and I had an off the record, a quick off the record conversation with Brett Brown for about ten minutes, and that was it. That's the Sixers' participation. I mean, I pretty much sums it up. I did. Yeah. Um, you know, were there, you know, when, when, when you mentioned like the extent of notes or and things like that, was there any part of the book that, that, you know, that they knew about via you that, you know, they didn't want included or they had the most issues with? Uh, I mean, I'm sure I always operate like, I'm, I'm curious if you think the same thing. Like, I always think that they, they kind of, I feel like they get wind of who you're talking to for the most part. Don't you like in this stuff? Maybe I could be wrong. Maybe not everybody. But I yeah. think so. I think so. Right, like um, it's a small world, and I said they can. I think people talk enough, and they can kind of get an idea. So, yeah, well, the specific parts. I mean, I don't know. They they pushed back. They got upset about me saying how Nolan's Noel was allowed to do whatever he wanted when he um when he uh, was with the team, like they like hold planes and stuff. They're very clear. No, we find him a lot, so it wasn't that's not fair. Um, a couple other things. They didn't push back, and maybe like I sent some things about Scott O'Neill, who's the team CEO, and basically mentioning how how um how basically he had helped push out Sam Hinkie, right? And got behind Sam Hinkie back. And I put those in there. They didn't, they didn't push back anything to that. Um, I'll tell you what they pushed back on. They did not, <laughs> they were not happy with the characterization of Josh Harris's business principles as a private equity principles. When I, I quoted a book called uh, Josh Harris, you know, he made his money in private equity as a book written by this guy, Josh Cosman, I think is his name, a New York Post reporter. So again, like, not a quote unquote liberal rag, right? This is the New York Post. Um, and the book's called how Pri- the, the book's called how private equity is destroying America, or destroying the American economy, or something like that. And I quoted from the book, and they were very clear to say there was the book saying how um, when it was a line that private equity guys they don't care about the employees or the businesses they buy, and they were very stringent about pushing back about that, that how that's not true about Josh Harris. Yeah, <laughs> so that's one. Almost as interesting. Uh, I mean, obviously the book goes into great detail about. The process and you know Sam Hinkie coming on and, and obviously what the Sixers were, were trying to do in terms of rebuilding, but almost as interesting and then I'm sure you can tell by my questions um, as, as what they were trying to do on the court. It's just like how they just function uh, as an organization. Like, did, did you find that as interesting as, as maybe some of the process stuff? Yeah, I think so. Like the way I've kind of been selling the book is like it's a book about how the NBA works more than the Sixers story, right? Just like I agree with you, like all the behind the scenes stuff that happens that kind of like results in the results that we see on the court. It leads to what we see on the court there, right? Um, so, no, I agree. I found that fascinating and enjoy it. Like I kind of pitched, if you look at my proposal, it was pitched, and I think this is also because I think like this is what publisher wanted to hear. Like I pitched it as sort of like, you know, money ball for basketball, right? Sam Hinky as Billy Bean, blah, 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 which we see a lot of. Um, I think the story is kind of boring, you know, the uh, give the GM a, um, I was going to use a type, what kind of, whatever, I, I won't use language, but just praise the GM um, of a team. Like the, we thought of the Astros book too, right? Astro Ball and stuff like that. And I find this other stuff much more interesting. So I agree with you. I think kind of the back end stuff, like I ended up going that direction and I was happy about that. Yeah. Tell tell the, um, tell the listeners who, who might be interested in checking out the book, um, kind of your run in and with Sam Hinkie and kind of what that storyline, how that storyline unfolded. Yeah, so Hinky, I uh, Hinky, like, I got, I had got his number early on, and he was very polite and friendly. We spoke on the phone. Um, I told him what I was doing, and he politely said, "I'm not interested in 
talking about my legacy and just like you know hard feelings about it um he did use the word legacy which i was fine with. like i like when people use the word legacy and then claim they're not interested in their legacy like i feel like if you use the word legacy you therefore are interested in it right <laughs> um so yeah i did that we had some two back and forth um again very nice but then it became a little weird like i would reach out to like a high school a college friend and they would say they're cool to do an interview and then i would call and they would say no they can't and it was clear i think he had told he was telling people not to participate um so but then so finally though it's sloan so it, i guess it's march 2019 right yeah um i see him at a i'm at a bar and like at, at sloan he's a bunch of nba people at the sloan sports analyst conference and I think he's sort of a legend there. Like the story is like him and Obama spoke the same year once and he got a larger ovation than Obama. Um, so that's why pre-coronavirus, maybe now it would change. Um, and, uh, and so I go, I see Hinky's sitting at, I see Hinky sitting at the, having a tea at the bar watching a game and eating like a sandwich with chips. Um, so I go off and introduce myself and it was just, we spoke on the phone, but he never met me. And it was just, you know, I kind of thought there'd be some, smile or some hey sit down you know all good you know it was not that which is not his way um and the conversation sort of petered out after a few minutes and you know, i tried every one of my moves in terms of keeping the conversation going like talking about kids and other stuff um the end like he leaves and i'm stuck sitting next to one of his friends who's an assistant gm for another team and the friend guy's asking me how many uh <laughs> how many kids do you have i'm like two he's like i have three get a second me and i start laughing and he goes i'm not joking or something i never met before um just like that was weird um, and then the next, I kind of stalk, I guess I can use that word, right? Stalk Hinky throughout the conference. Like wherever I see him, I'm just kind of like, if I see him, I'm staring at him for a half hour and seeing what he does, who he looks at, all that stuff. And the next night or two nights later, I see him at a bar and the Sixers are playing the Warriors. And it's just like surreal watching him watch the Sixers play and friends are around him. And, and, uh, I hear him ask a friend, Hey, is MCW, Michael Carter Williams, who we traded a few years ago, like is MCW still in the league? Um, and he was happy. Another friend of his had taken a shot at an NBA guy, NBA league office guy doing a panel. It was just, uh, yeah, it was kind of surreal watching the whole thing uh, play out. Yeah. How do you think um, Hanky should be remembered for, for what he did with the Sixers? Good question. Uh, he's like, yeah, how should he remember? Because the weird thing with him is, so like, tanking wasn't new, right? It's not a new strategy. Um, he he like took it further than anyone else, which is that's one that's a big thing. Um but it's not a new strategy. I it's a good question. Like the process I, I, I come when I come down like come down to it, I think it works. Like if you're just going simple, black, white, yes. You know, they were bad, they were boring, they got Simmons and indeed now they're a contender and they matter, right? Whether they win or not. Um but I don't know, it's like a guy who I don't have a not have a good answer. Like he kind of he drove everyone mad for so many different ways. It's kind of funny. Like people, his supporters, he became these rabid cult-like supporters. People who were not down with what he's doing. Like it drove them mad that anyone could believe in this guy, and they went over the top with the criticisms. Um, a lot of them were fair, a lot not. I guess if you kind of think about him, like I got a good idea, but he probably also you know executed it. I'm not gonna say poorly. He made some mistakes. I think he misread how. Um, political and how small world the NBA is and how that stuff matters in terms of being able to do your job. Maybe that's a good answer, right? He was, he was an idealist and there's no room for that, right? The idea that he, he truly believed that his work would speak for itself in the end. It would work and things would be good and they would win and everyone would be like, oh, this is great. And that's just not how the world works often and that's not how the NBA works. Yeah. What about Brett Brown? Because I know, you know, 
he had come from the Spurs organization and was obviously brought in and, and knew that there was going to be um, a lot of losing uh, to start. And it feels like with the team getting better now in, in the past few years, maybe there's been more uh, criticism directed towards him, you know, from, from just, you know, following the team, obviously writing this book and getting to know him. Like, how would you evaluate Brett Brown? Yeah, that's one of the hardest questions for me to answer. Like, I've, I've people keep asking me this because, like, well, if you read the book and it's very clear, and I did this, like, I, I wrote this, right? It was a clear narrative um, through line, the idea that he failed to create a culture of accountability, right? That's one. Um, so, so, and that's partly his fault. Um, it started with Nolan Doyle and ended up with Joel Embiid, um, and you see that. But there's also, like, it wasn't all his fault. You know, he got dealt some tough blows in terms of, that like said Hinky didn't help him out, right? He was, didn't have a heavy behind him. Um Embiid, you know, I would go back to the pop fish line where like can you let me coach him? So like Embiid is not that kind of player. Um he was not interested in that. Um and acting the same way. Um yeah Brown's fascinating because he's like he both gets too much praise, I think, and too much credit. Have a and uh, too much criticism, right? That's kind of what I found interesting, right? I think some of the some of this ideas and the way the way fans and the media often just depict him or picture him as this um, this happy-go-lucky, super friendly, rah-rah, kumbaya guy. That's not him, right? He's got a temper. You can curse people out, which, again, professional sports, fine. Um, but, like, and there's a story in the book, even, like, I thought it wasn't right. He, and she was, I don't think she's happy I wrote this, but, like, he cursed out. Um, the day of the Jimmy Butler blow-up that everyone knows about, the Portland one, the film session, after that, he turns to Serena Winters, who's a team southern reporter, and who's always in the, you know, usually, like, a lot of teams do this. They let the sideline reporters in there um, during practices or whatever. Not necessarily in the film session, but, like, near the gym to kind of see if it's work or whatever. And he starts yelling at her, cursing her, like, what the, can I curse? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck is you doing here? Like, stuff like that. And, like, stuff like that's not right, right? And it, it was never written about. Um, there's a few things like that where it's not covered. Um, and he's really open in his press conferences and gives long answers, you know, and and I think that helps build an image. So that part is not necessarily true or fair. And I thought it was important to kind of correct that a little bit. That said, people blame everything on him and man, he's been dealt a tough blow, right? Like in terms of some of the personalities he's dealt with, in terms of all the shit he's had to deal with as a head coach, from, you know, the hinky stuff and Julia Okafor and Fultz and Brett Colangelo and Bernergate and all, and Embiid is not an easy person to coach at all, right? And there's so much of it. So it's hard to put him in a box. Um, I, I guess the way to remember is he, he's just like his story. He will be, oh, he will be a part of the Sixers story. Like wherever this goes, he will play, be a major part in that story. I guess that's something. Yeah. What was the relationship like between um, Brett Brown and Sam Hankey? Uh It was good. Uh, as far as I know, it was good. Not as far as I know. I, I know I should say the other way. I never heard anything otherwise, right? Um, like Brown knew what he was signing up for, right? He knew. So again, it's still one thing to know it and then live it. Like, I think the second year, they take the first year, the second year, they think some reinforcements on the way. They have two lottery picks, and then they use lottery picks on Embiid, who's out for the year, and maybe more, and Dario Saric, who um, is going to be overseas for at least two more years. And that's like a wake up call to everybody, being like, "Oh my God, this is really, <laughs> this is going to be different, right? Like, we're a lottery team, and we use our two lottery picks on guys who won't play for another twelve months, twenty four months. Um, so that part, yeah." Um, no, but, I mean, they got along. Um, there was a line between them, not in terms of uh, personalities. Like, Hinky was big to draw a line between the front office and the coaching staff. He thought that was important in terms of, one, like, devoting resources. He cared. He didn't care about winning games. So, like, why would he have his guys pay attention to that? I'm saying pay attention to quotes. Obviously, they pay attention a little bit. 
like he didn't go to practices a lot. He didn't do a lot of those things. It just wasn't a good use of time. Also, he thought it was important. They had different incentives, right? The front office did not care about winning the coaching staff did. He didn't think it'd be fair if, you know, if the front office was around. The front office who doesn't care about wins would be around the coaching staff who does, right? It's just what you get. Um, but in the end, like Brown, like I got a story. Brown tried bringing in Danny Ferry, or Brown kind of helped bring in, or not bring in, help broker. I don't know what the proper word is. Um, after after Jerry Colangelo came in and they were clear they wanted to stand to work with another GM and Hinky wasn't happy, Brown wanted Hinky to stay. He wanted him to keep his job and he knew, he tried. He knew Danny Ferry from the days of the Spurs and he kind of connected them a little bit. Him and Hinky and Hinky and Ferry spent a lot of time discussing whether it could work. Um, it ended up not, but so Brown, yeah, that was Brown Hinky got along really well. Yeah, you know, one of the most interesting things in reading the book um, and making me remember is just how wild um the brian colangelo era was once he comes in right? yeah uh, i mean obviously with with his dad there and it seemed like there was you know some push from the league who didn't want this team to, to be intentionally losing year after year and it seems like brian comes in and i'm sure some of the Sixers fan base would agree that maybe he undid some of the processes that that hinky had put in or or some of the um, kind of his beliefs on how to build a team um, what do you feel about the, the, the Brian Colangelo era? I mean, obviously it ended with him, um, you know, with all the social media stuff, but in terms of the team building aspect, um, do you feel like, like he undid a, a lot of the stuff that, that Sam, um, had, had kind of put in place or, or was this kind of, um, the direction the team was going to go in anyways, once they had accumulated all these, um, all these young talented guys? You know, I think he, he accelerated timeline like crazy, right? The Sixers never had like, I compare them to the Grizzlies, to like the fun league pass, plucky young team we all love. The Sixers kind of skipped that part. <laughs> they went straight to, you know, every game matters contention. So, yeah, they trade. I mean, it's one of the funniest, like, it, the trade doesn't matter, but it's just one of the, you want to draw a line. Like, they traded after Jerry came in. This was before Brian, but they traded two second round picks for Ish Smith, right? Like, that's, if you want an example of, like, the kind of trade Sam Hinkie was not doing, that is it. Um, so, yeah, the other thing is, like, they, so there's that, there's, um, this trading the false trading up for false right the idea of Hinky's whole strategy was basically built upon the idea that drafting is really hard it's, so yeah what we want is multiple swings of the plate because you're going to miss but if we get more swings then we can at least get more chances to hit we'll eventually hit and honestly he's kind of proven right there right they missed a lot and yet they ended up with Embiid and Simmons um so I don't think Hinky trades two guys for fault like for two excuse me trades an extra lottery pick to trade up to get number one to take faults right and that's the biggest example of something that would have been different. But it's also other moves along the margins. Um, and just in terms of rushing to be a contender. Part of that, looking back, is also – I think they would have done it anyway. If you remember, so that first year, that 2017-2018 year, they won 16 games at the end of the year. It's almost like they had too much good luck, and having so much good luck created bad luck, led to them being unlucky, if that makes sense. So they, they won 16 games at the end of the year, and that was the year that the Cavs were really struggling um, when LeBron was there. And Kyrie and Gordon Hayward were hurt coming down the stretch in Boston. And, like, at one point, the Sixers were kind of favorites. I believe they were favorites to come out of the East. So they also, like, they skipped the plucky part, but also because they played too well in some way. And, like, the league and the conference around them looked open for a minute. Um, so that also changed things. It would be interesting to see if, let's say, the Celtics had been good that whole year. LeBron, Cavs had kind of won 60 games that year. And the Sixers win just 10 of 16 games, 10 of their last 16 games. Um, are things like do they handle things a little differently? But I do. But there's somebody, yeah, Colangelo. Like he, he was Hinky was not big on a timeline. Colangelo was very big. The second he came in there, we want to start competing now. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny, um, you know, you, you, you referred to, obviously, they got Embiid and Simmons as their two building blocks. But reading the book, too, uh, I think it really shines a light on just how much of a crapshoot the whole draft process is, right? Like, like you know, you talk about Fultz, uh, Nerland's Noel. Um, I didn't have my, Michael Carter-Williams, Jalil Okafor. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, and you know, you can do a lot of these what-ifs. And the Sixers probably, you know, they're not the only team you can do this with. Uh, you can say they could have gotten Porzingis and a lot of these other players. Um, yeah. Do you do you think um, do you think another team um, will will ever have the same kind of uh, factors and situations and all of that in place in the organization to do something like this again, or will another team even try this again? I don't think. I mean, the one, the two things, like the math is. I don't know how. Like, I'd be curious to see like. It's still actually crunching numbers, but like the math doesn't line up. For one, they flatten the odds, right? So you're no longer as likely to be rewarded for losing with a top pick. So that's one thing, and that was a pretty much a direct result of this. Also, and this affects big market teams more, but it's like stars. When Higgy looked at this, it wasn't that he like wanted to always tank. The whole math, the whole equation was we want to win championship. Okay, you meet one of the most championship teams in history, league history, have stars. Most of those stars are acquired via the draft, and most of the times those guys stay on the same team they're drafted on. So like Tim Duncan types, Kobe Bryant types, Hakeem Olajuwon, stuff like that, right? Um, now, between the lottery odds and contracts are now shorter and stars move around a ton more and hit the market much more frequently, right? Um, I just don't know if it makes as much sense um, to do that, right, if the match lines up. So maybe if you're a small market team, it could. Um, but I don't know. I don't. I don't think we'll see someone do three years, right? Where they were about Hinky was ready to do. Like he was. He he resigned toward the end of his third year, where the team was tanking completely. Um, and he probably would have gone another one or two. Um, maybe another one, depending on who the pick was, right? Or Simmons, right? Simmons would have missed the next year. Um, so probably another. So probably would have gone four years before they actually tried even to win games. Um, I don't think we'll see another team do that for the foreseeable future. Yeah, you know, one of the one of my favorite things too is just Joel Embiid's uh, admiration and love for Hinky. Um, you know, yes. especially like even after he left. Um, you know, did you find out anything about um, you know that connection that that maybe you you personally didn't know before? Um, I don't think I know. I I found out. Let's just go on. So 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 the thing is, neither of them. I didn't get to sit down to interviews with any of them, so I couldn't like you know I'll be upfront and mm-hmm. I was able to ask any of them. Um, major things on that. I did find it interesting going back, and I don't think I was the first to report this, but um, that's definitely a thing. The idea that when Embiid's brother was killed in Cameroon, so Embiid was about a month in, he found out this like, horrible story. So many horrible stories in this book. It's really, it's really interesting and sad. Um, yeah. You know, Embiid, um, a runaway truck, I believe, ran to that, so it kind of ran through like a schoolyard or whatever and killed Embiid's 10, 13-year-old brother, I believe and some other kids. Um, and that night, Hinky goes and I think spent the night, I believe was spent the night or spent the time, I think it might have been spent the night with Embiid um, in his apartment. Um, and they kind of bonded over that. And, B, and Hinky is somebody who related to grief. He, um, his brother, Hinky was 10, his brother was 17 and committed suicide, um, which is again, horrible. And Hinky, that statement, there's one I don't have in front of me, the statement Hinky put out, the official team statement after about when they announced that Embiid was Embiid's brother had been killed, and Hinky said something. It was very clear that it was written by Hinky because it said something along the lines of like, I don't know, something like, are humans? He's going through something that humans are not 
meant coping or don't have the coping ability to deal with. Let me, let me take a look up quickly as we're talking. Because um, I, I found it really interesting. Like, it was very much in Hinky's language. It was, it was like you could hear Sam Hinky expressing how he dealt with grief himself, right? And how he mourned. And you could, so that was to answer your question, like, I feel like that is, that was, I mean, and you understand it, that night would definitely kind of kind of connect them for sure. Yeah, it's funny because, like, you know, obviously you tried to track uh, Hinky down um, for the book. And, and, you know, he's notorious for just, you know, being very reclusive and he was criticized for not maybe uh, being a front-facing guy for the organization. But he's such an interesting guy. And you can tell from these, like, uh, snippets, like you mentioned, like the statement that he released um, after Andy's brother passed away or, or even that whole manifesto that, that he put out, right? Yeah. Or that was leaked. Um, like, like he's such an interesting guy. Like, I, you know, like, I would have just loved to know more about him. Like, what, 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 what would you have, if you had a chance to sit down with him, and I'm sure you thought about this, what were the main things that you would have wanted to ask him about if you had, like, a five, ten minutes to, to, to really talk about yeah. the record for the book? Um, so there's a couple, right? There's one, there's strict um, basketball questions. Not basketball questions. Like, I have a few things, like, can you explain to me? I don't understand why you did this. Can you explain it to me? Like, why didn't you see this, that this would be a problem? So that's team-building perspective, right? Things like why, you know, there's a trade they did with Andre Kirilenko, where, like, they, he basically refused to release Andre Kirilenko because he wanted to get him a second-round pick when Andre Kirilenko's wife was on bed rest and pregnant. She was healthy, but had prescribed bed rest and had, she, had preg- she was pregnant with three kids. I think they had three kids already. At his Brooklyn apartment, he didn't want to come come to town. He didn't want to come to the Sixers. Um, I think he refused to release him, basically, because he thought he could get a second-round pick for him, right? And just, like, a- asking why asking why is that like why why is that math like do you not realize that the second pick's not worth what this is doing to even like forget even just good or bad being kind or not just from a reputation and from the ability like the ability to operate freely going forward that's one the other one is like i'm kind of baffled hinky someone who preaches um different sort of viewpoints and you know collecting different viewpoints and yet his main executive staff or people who thought the game came at the game like him analytics guys got ben falk when cleaning the glass down, Sasha Gupta, who works for the Timberwolves now and came to the Rockets and actually invented the trade machine. And, you know, all really smart, good people. Um, but it's all looking at the same deal. And I'm kind of, I would have loved. I, I never understood why Hinky didn't hire like an Elton Brand type as sort of an assistant GM, right? Those are basketball stuff. And I'd be curious being like, can you explain to me? I don't understand your viewpoint on this. Then personality, yeah, I would have loved to have known one just like, it sounds like a silly question, but so how did your, knowing your, your brother killed himself when you were 10 years old, how did that affect you moving forward, right? That's one. And two is what, like, what was your goal? Was your goal just to win a championship? Was it something bigger than that? Um, but honestly, sometimes I felt like it was something bigger, um, and I don't know. Um, so those would be kind of my two questions. And I, as I'm talking to you, I said that the statement he gave, he put out is, uh, Sixers are said to learn that you have lost a sibling or a child is unfathomable. We are poorly designed for that kind of loss. So that's like such a that's such hinky language for a statement, right? That's not a PR guy putting that together. That's very much very clearly written in Hinky's words. So in terms of that, going back to like the bond between him and Embiid, that can kind of I think give us some hints. Yeah. Do you think you'll ever get um, another position in the league, or maybe the better question is, do you think he wants to uh, run another team again? I think that's a question, right? I think the answer, by the way, I answer that is both. Like, if not, if you look at the Venn diagram of teams who would hire, who who would be willing to hire him, and the teams he'd be willing to work for, 
we're down to a really small list if one even exists, right? Um, like the, he definitely felt betrayed by what went down in Philadelphia. He thought he was on, him and ownership saw things the same way. He thought they were on board. He was carrying out a vision that they were, that they were on board with and they approved and went along with the way they operated most of their businesses, right? And private equity often buyers distressed asset, tear it down, build it back up, right? Like that sounds kind of familiar, right? Um, so, so that part betrayed him. And I, I don't think he, the politics of the league um, bother him. And, you know, I think he might've realized that that was not for him. So he had, when you look, so what, what would it take? It would take an owner who's, you know, I'm going to say analytically inclined. And I don't just mean like, I think sometimes these things get boiled down too simply into the idea of you're an old school guy, a new school guy like that. I don't mean like that. Just the guy who thinks the way Hinky does. So probably a new age owner, probably from the finance world, who's willing to give Hinky the reins, but then also, you know, let Hinky make all decisions. It's almost like Mark Cuban, but if Mark Cuban wasn't Mark Cuban, right? Um, and those guys, just, we, we see they, they don't really exist anymore. Yeah. Do you think if he came back to that, like he would care to, you know, do the process again, or he would just want to do something completely different, maybe take on a team that's just on the verge of uh, contending for a championship? So it's like, that's, what, so people said this, like, he gets labeled as a tanking guy, and it's not it, right? It's the idea that, he thought, like, he was in Houston before. That's where he worked for seven years. They never tanked, right? But the idea was, one, their ownership didn't want them to. And I do think he believed in carrying out ownership's plan. Um, but also, they had two superstars, and Trace Integrated and Yao Mei. So it's like, if you have two guys, and why would tank? Because instead, trade for Shane Battier types and, like, try to figure out to win that way, right? It was the idea being, we want to win a championship. This, that's where we want to go. Here's what our roster is now. What's the best way to become a championship contender? Um, when he came to Philadelphia, it was by tanking, right? I think if he took over the, uh, I don't know, who's an example? Like, who's the, the Thunder? I don't know, they don't need to tank anymore, right? They have the pieces. Maybe that's not even a good, good example, but like the Indiana Pacers, I don't know, whatever it is, right? It might be something else. Um, so yeah, I don't expect the tanking part. I mean, he would still do, like, he would say, I'm sure, no, I'm still doing a process. Like, it's still process over results, but the idea would he tank? No, I don't think, unless the team, you know, unless it was called for. Yeah, what do you think um, is the ultimate, you know, lesson or takeaway, or how do you think the process will be remembered over time? Uh, whew, this crazy time that just set, I don't know, this is a craziness. I don't know, like, it's not a good answer, right? It's going to be like this experiment that sort of worked and just drove the NBA world mad. I really think that's it, right? I don't think I'm just saying that because I wrote a book about it, but just, there's so many things and so much shit. It's always big personalities and craziness. And, you know, again, Burnergate and Embiid and Markel Fultz and just all these things. Um, so how will be remembered? And yeah, I think, and I think you'll be remembered as somebody, I don't know. I, I don't think it's going to be remembered as something that worked. Let me, let me go back. I think it worked. I think a lot of people are like pushing back on it and saying, yeah, it didn't actually work. They didn't win. Right. I don't think it's going to be automatic unless they win a championship in the next couple of years. Um, so again, I just think there's something, maybe the best, the best way I would summarize it is this, this thing that sort of triggered this NBA culture war. Um, and that's how, that's how you want that to answer. Yeah, awesome. You're on, man. Thanks for, thanks for coming on to chat. Everybody should check out um, his book, Tanking to the Top, the Philadelphia 76ers and the most audacious process in the history of professional sports. And also because now we have, uh, we all have a lot of time and uh, exactly you, you have no excuse but to read it no but it's a it was a super fun book um, um to read and everyone should check it out and you're on stay safe and uh we'll talk soon man thank you buddy i appreciate it. you too yeah man we'll talk soon okay yep okay see you man see you